I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know about tens of thousands who have disappeared. Once they get into the hands of the military, they will be tortured brutally. It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list. She was seen as a dangerous political actor and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen, or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Yeah, of course I remember that day. (laughs) It was Monday. Uh, We were sleeping because it was uh, six o'clock in the morning. And there was a very uh, loud knock on the door. This is Mikhail. He lives in Moscow. As soon as he heard that knock, he knew what was about to happen. That day last October, Russia was in the midst of a troop mobilization. They were trying to get 300,000 new conscripts to send off to fight in Ukraine. And that day's things gone really wild. Here in Moscow, raids began to take place in the streets, uh, near the metro stations. Videos online showed police and military sweeping up men who were of fighting age. Uh, so my wife opened the door. The, the dropped guy introduced himself, said he was looking for me. Uh, and I just stayed in room with the kid because she was scared. Mikhail and his wife had talked about this and planned for this moment. He had no intention of fighting for the Russian army. And uh, of course my wife uh, didn't sign anything, didn't take it, didn't take the draft notice and just said I wasn't at home. Five or 10 minutes, I just got a train ticket to neighboring country of Belarus when we we don't have a passport control with it uh, just in case I was already in the blacklist in the evening my wife took me to the train station then just not knowing when we would see each other basically so I can say that <laughs> the feeling of shock overtook me only in, in Minsk in the Belarus uh, in a hotel room when I just sat on the bed and uh, realized that that was really happening to me. Mikhail spent about a month in Belarus, trying to figure out what to do next. A few weeks ago, he came back to Moscow. He was able to get a postponement for the draft through his job, but he doesn't know how long that's going to last and when he might be called up again. Well, unfortunately, my job doesn't involve a quick move or like a long-term remote work. So um, I'm still thinking about a potential move, potential relocation, because the situation here, well, doesn't improve a lot. So I don't see any future for my children here. At the end of last year, Russian President Vladimir Putin was insisting that there was no need to mobilize more Russian troops. Only some of the people who had already been drafted were actually on the front lines. But as Russia suffered more losses, 
pro-war hardliners in the country have been saying that's exactly what he needs to do. Political analysts have been pointing to Putin's recent speeches, saying that he's signaling that Russia is in it for the long haul. And in recent weeks, Ukrainian intelligence officials have claimed that a second round of mobilization is just around the corner. About a year ago, we did an episode on the view of the war in Ukraine from Russia. And at the time, it looked like there was a lot of support for it. But there's been a lot of development since then. Information about what's been happening on the front lines beyond what's being shown on state TV has been reaching more people. And there was that partial mobilization that Mikhail almost got swept up in. It came as a shock, and it brought the war closer to home. Even if temporarily, the last mobilization did hurt public support for the war. And with fears of another one on the way, we thought it would be a good time to go back to Russia to see how people are feeling now about the war and how the prospect of a second mobilization might change that. I'm Tamara Kandaker, and this is Nothing is Foreign. Mikhail isn't alone in trying to flee the country since the first mobilization. As of September, estimates put that number around 200,000. That's based on data from surrounding countries that Russians have gone to, like Kazakhstan and Georgia and the European Union. But leaving isn't easy. And there is an ongoing debate in Europe about whether to accept Russians as refugees. So for now, Mikhail's decided to just sit and wait and keep a low profile. We're not using his last name because speaking out against the war could get him arrested. We talk through WhatsApp voice notes about why he doesn't want to fight for Russia. Because, uh, first of all, this war is just unjust, uh, without clear goals started by a man who totally lost his mind and uh, it caused just a huge harm to both our countries. So it's not a war, it's just killing an innocent people for almost a year. And that's it. And the second part, of course I don't want to be part of this because I don't want to put my family without a father and husband. So that's just simple. How does your view that this is not a just war and that innocent people are being killed, how does it stack up with the views of people around you? Like, what kind of conversations are you having with friends and family? Do they feel the same way? And what are your observations of how people's opinions differ on this war? Well, first of all, I think it's very difficult to conduct an honest survey in a modern-day Russia. Last year, our parliament has passed many uh, censorship laws, so you can't call a war a war, and you can't protest, uh, so you can go straight to prison. Most of people, uh, they're just afraid to answer honest questions. Most of people are trying to stay apolitical and to pretend that uh, it's not their business. I think it's very hard to convince the older generation, the elderly people, because uh, they just, most of them are just brainwashed because they don't use internet, they use Russian TV and all 
the TV is controlled by uh, by Putin by propaganda. The closest example is my mother-in-law, uh, who is against the war as such, but uh, she supports Putin's policy anyway. So it's really really hard to convince her that this thing is just unjust. And <laughs> well, I keep keep trying, but uh, no chance at all, basically. I think most of young people are against the war because, well, most of my friends and uh, even my colleagues in private talks, like 90% are against the war. But of course, if you call them and try to uh, you know, to answer the questions publicly, of course, they'll say that it's not their business because they're just afraid to speak. And I understand them. I'm afraid to speak publicly because <laughs> I don't want to go to prison, that's for sure. So Mikhail, who we're going to hear from again in just a bit, says he and his friends are staunchly opposed to the war. But given how rare it still is to hear Russians speak out against it, it's worth asking what we actually know about how common that view is. I wanted to put that question to Denis Volkov. He's the director of the Levada Center in Moscow, an independent research organization that's been tracking Russian public opinion on the war. Hi, Denise. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, hello. Uh, nice to be with you. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you. So, Denise, we're about a year into this war now. And based on your latest polling, how would you characterize the Russian public's support for it? Well, the uh, support itself is uh, rather stable. We have about uh, 70 percent uh, of those who support uh, Russian military, but it's uh, well, the nature of this support is uh, like us versus them. As people say, these are our boys, our warriors, how we can uh, be against them. But at the same time, I think it's uh, important to understand that this high uh, level of support is uh, possible in the circumstances when uh, not many people uh, watch closely what uh, is happening. So far, it hasn't affected the area where I live. I don't know what's next. The only thing that did happen, many men were taken to the front. I support the operation. There are no rallies. Everyone here supports it. We've sent humanitarian supplies. So for majority of Russians, uh, this is a distant war that is happening uh, somewhere at the borders where uh, only small minority of soldiers are taking place, uh, which is fought by the professionals mainly and by the uh, military companies. How do people feel about peace talks right now? Well, the idea of peace talks is rather popular. We have the biggest numbers of uh, uh, those in favor of peace talks uh, right after the first uh, uh, wave of uh, partial mobilization was introduced in late uh, uh, September. And after that, we had the well, increase in numbers, uh, a little bit more than half of uh, Russians would uh, welcome peace talks now, though this number uh, is going a little bit down. Why do you think that's going down? Well, I think it's going down exactly because the well, partial mobilization, at least the first part of mobilization uh, is over. And uh, people are coming down. 
and uh, and uh, more people now uh, again uh, think that it is a distance war and they will not be directly involved in it. The 70% of people who say they support the war, is that unequivocal support for the war or are there any distinctions that we should make there? Well, there is a core of supporters, uh, which is about, I think, 40% or something like this. They are rather stable. First of all, older uh, people, people from outside of big cities, strong supporters of uh, Putin, of the authorities, watching mainly TV and getting news primarily from uh, uh, state uh, television. Uh, and uh, then there are around 30% of those who have uh, doubts. And uh, in uh, the interviews or in focus groups, they explain um, their attitude as, as following, that uh, maybe it's not right. Uh, maybe the fighting is uh, it's, it's bad. It's bad when people are dying. But uh, still, uh, the, uh, the government probably has uh, uh, their reasons. Uh, and also that it will be uh, unpatriotic to be against and to criticize the government right now when the uh, half of the world is against Russia. I wanted to ask you, because you're a pollster, I've also been talking to a Russian guy named Mikhail who is opposed to the war and he's trying to avoid having to go fight for Russia. And he was saying that it's really scary for people to speak out. And so he's skeptical of a lot of the polling that we've seen. How accurately do you think the polls reflect public opinion? I think the polls exactly reflects public opinion. It's not about uh, private uh, thoughts that people might say and that they are not ready to share with the, the public. It's uh, about uh, public attitudes, public behavior. But also uh, speaking about the accuracy of polling, uh, I, I think it is important to say that uh, we measure such indicators like response rate and uh, we, didn't, uh, we didn't see big... Uh, 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 fluctuations uh, last year compared with the previous year. How would you explain this widespread support for the war at this point? What's the thinking behind it? Yeah, the main understanding, understanding that the majority, this is uh, uh, the war fight uh, fought between Russia in the West, primarily United States, about Ukraine, in Ukraine, but it's not uh, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And what is also important, that these quantums uh, of understanding of the conflict uh, and the uh, main cleavages between, for example, older and younger people, uh, TV viewers and internet users, uh, we uh, saw them even prior the fighting started. And then I'm curious, when it comes to older people who might be supportive of the war, is there anything else that you think we should understand about the historical context that they're coming from? Is there something about how they grew up that might be kind of informing their support for this conflict? Older generations, they also have uh, very negative uh, attitudes towards uh, the West, towards the United States. Uh, so I think this is also this um, uh, memory of uh, Soviet narratives uh, uh, that people uh, get used to, uh, to them, which is uh, uh, that many Western countries are, are by default, they are 
negative uh, towards Russia and no compromise is possible. So, uh, but uh, here I think that it's uh, not that uh, uh, Russian authorities only use uh, these uh, narratives. I, I, I think that as all the uh, representatives uh, of all the generations, they themselves uh, have these fears, uh, these complexes, and uh, they can uh, be very, uh, rather sincere about uh, what they're talking. It's the, how the older generations here understand how the world uh, works, who are friends, who are um, enemies, and uh, whether it is possible or not to, to come to terms with them. How has the government been ensuring that the public continues to support the war? What has the messaging been recently from the Kremlin? From the very beginning, uh, the main reasons uh, uh, why uh, people thought Russia intervened was because to help uh, Russian-speaking population of Donbas. It is this reason is still there. We see it in the public opinion polls, but uh, increasingly it is now uh, about uh, Russia itself, yeah. uh, Russia, Russian sovereignty, Russian borders, Russian independence from the West. This has been a year of difficult, necessary decisions, of crucial steps towards Russia's full sovereignty and the powerful consolidation of our society. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Right now, there is a lot of talk about another possible partial mobilization of Russian soldiers. And there are some analysts and Ukrainian intelligence officials saying that it could be coming in a matter of days. Of course, Russia hasn't announced anything, but we've talked to Russians who are worried what kind of impact is that fear around another mobilization having on the wider Russian public's support for the war, do you think? Well, according to our data, about two-thirds admit that there could be uh, another wave of mobilization or even a mass mobilization. So this is a, a possibility for many. But at the same time, uh, uh, for, for the majority, the first wave is uh, over. And this is, uh, it was the, the end of the immediate worries. You know, the first wave of mobilization was uh, very traumatic uh, for, for the majority, again, because these uh, uh, criteria were not absolutely not clear. Uh, and uh, it came as a shock. So majority of people didn't uh, expect it to happen, or at least to happen so soon. Protests across several Russian cities and here in Moscow against mobilization. And the habitual response from police. 
the overall moods uh, became very negative. I mean, the uh, individual moods, individual uh, assessments of the current situation became very uh, negative for a couple of months. But then when the uh, mobilization was over, we uh, see that, uh, well, the moods recovered. Uh, the most anxious, uh, they left the country. Others uh, 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 got permissions not to serve uh, in the army. And uh, uh, also the criteria of this uh, mobilization is more understandable now because initially it was uh, absolutely vague. People didn't understand who will be recruited. And uh, because of this, we have this mass fear that almost anyone uh, can be recruited, can be mobilized. So probably the attitude towards the next way will be calmer, but certainly it will also have this negative effect because the majority uh, don't want to uh, go and serve. So we just heard Denise say that for a lot of people in Russia right now, the war in Ukraine still feels like it's far away. And that might be surprising given the sweeping list of sanctions that were imposed on Russia by Western countries within days of the invasion. That includes the removal of Russia from SWIFT, an international payment system, cutting off the Russian central bank's access to its reserves overseas, and limiting the flow of Western products into the country. So I asked Mikhail how, if at all, his life has changed since the start of the war, if there are any visible signs of it in his day-to-day -day life. Yeah, there are changes, of course. Uh, but, well, I I won't say radical changes, because, well, Moscow lives everyday life, right? So there are a lot of billboards saying support our heroes, support this special operation. And um, generally, I think that the sanctions, they just don't work the, the way they should. Uh, because, well, how I feel the sanctions on me, for example. Yeah, I can't buy uh, flowers to my friends or relatives in England. I have some friends and relatives in England, for example. Yeah, I can't use my credit cards anymore or I can't watch Netflix, or I can't use Booking.com, or I can't eat cheeseburger in McDonald's because they left the country. But for me, these sanctions are <laughs> strange, to say at least. Yeah, I think the main sanctions should work on oligarch, I don't know, on the uh, gas and oil companies, something like that, but not for ordinary people like me. You know what I mean? Like the ordinary guy from, say, Siberian village without a passport, right? He's never been abroad. And, uh, well, okay, what's the, what's the point to sanction him? He has never been to McDonald's or never watched Netflix TV show or does never uh, use, uh, like, foreign internet shop. So sanctions doesn't work properly. That's my opinion. Or uh, another example, the Western companies, they just left the Russian market, okay, like McDonald's. But uh, most of them just sold their business to uh, local Russian companies, right? So uh, they just reopened uh, some shops uh, with a different name. That's it. So 
bit strange for me to understand this. I guess the way that I understood the intent behind these sanctions, I, I think they're meant to pressure ordinary people to to put pressure on the Putin administration, right? So I'm, I'm wondering, what would you say to people who think Russians should rise up and protest the war? Um, or what, what would you say to people who see Russians themselves as complicit in this war? I would say that uh, no modern revolution has overthrown a Tehran through uh, peaceful protests. You can't, you just can't do it without support from the army or from the police, from National Guard. So let's say uh, people like in Belarus, for example, the nearby country where I escaped, uh, they tried to overthrow their Tehran two years ago, right? And uh, with a peaceful protest, right? There were thousands and thousands of people in the streets. And they did not succeed because there were no support from the army or special forces. And as I said before, there are a lot of discrimination laws nowadays here in Russia. So people are just afraid to do it because they're afraid to go to prison. They're afraid to be beaten. So that's why uh, like, I don't believe that uh, it's going to happen. Like the peaceful or the throne of our president. Unfortunately, and the last thing I wanted to ask you, Mikhail, um, because you're because you're someone who left the country temporarily, and you were thinking of maybe seeking asylum somewhere else. What message do you have for countries that might soon be dealing with a wave of Russian refugees if there is another mobilization? Um, and I'm asking because you know there there has been like debate about whether or not to accept Russian refugees, and some countries have openly said that they don't want to. The officials in Latvia were accommodating at first. They let him file for asylum. But a few months later, his request was denied. Stanislav went to court and fought the decision. In the end, he was allowed to stay. A rare ruling for Latvia. In contrast to Germany, the Baltic state generally denies Russians fleeing military service the right to stay. So yeah, what would you say to those countries and, and just give, give me your thoughts on, on that? Well, first of all, I would say big thanks to uh, countries who support Russian refugees. Uh, after the first wave of this mobilization, um, especially Kazakhstan, um, some other uh, Central Asian countries, Armenia, uh, Georgia, I think. Um, and for everyone else, I would say, I would ask to reconsider the decision to close their borders for uh, the people who try to escape the mobilization. Because, well, if a person doesn't want to kill innocent people, if a person wants to avoid this, why leave him in Russia. Why? And so we return to the previous, your previous question about this, uh, protests, revolution, and all the stuff like that. That uh, it's really hard and almost impossible nowadays to start uh, overthrown by peaceful protests, overthrown the current government by peaceful protests here in Russia. I would add that 
I think, of course, it's the easiest way for uh, for Europe, for example, for European politics uh, to say, yeah, we close the border for these Russians, they all support Putin. Uh, but that's just populism, right? Because the main thing is to avoid buying gas, oil from Putin. And a lot of European countries, they still buy it, right? So they uh, they pay Putin millions, millions of dollars every day. So that's how they support the war. But uh, to close closing borders and uh, refusing visas to Russian, to ordinary Russian, that's just populism, in my opinion. Thanks so much for for answering all these questions and and giving us all this insight. I'm um, I'm really grateful because I don't think we hear. Um, the Russian perspective very often, especially someone in your situation. So I think it'll be really valuable for people to um, to hear what you have to say. So thanks again. I really appreciate it. Uh, thanks, Tamara. It was a pleasure. And I hope I was able to convey a point of view to your audience. I would only add probably, probably a basic thing that uh, you can't put an equal sign between the government and the people of the country. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producer is Joyta Shangupta, and our sound designer is Graham McDonald. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McCabe-Locos. Special thanks to Olsi Sorokina and Corinne Semenoff for translation work and editorial support this week. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. And before I let you go, if you liked this episode, please take a second to share it with a friend or on your socials. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you back here next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.